Hey everyone, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning into today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. That now includes Pandora, which we were recently accepted to, as well as Amazon Music and Audible, if you happen to use those services, and any Alexa devices that you have in your home. Simply ask Alexa to play Cohen's Corner Podcast, and you should be able to find us. We hope that you enjoy checking us out on a variety of platforms, whatever's easiest for you. And if you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show and maybe a comment i check all the feedback myself and it's awesome to hear from so many of you each week across any social media platform where you might be interacting with me and one quick note before i introduce today's guest i just want to share with you guys that listenership for the podcast has exploded in the last two weeks. Now, certainly, we're not on a level of the Joe Rogan podcast or anything like that, but by our standards, we've exploded and and listenership is up over 200% the last two weeks versus the two weeks prior to that. And so I'm not sure if you guys are sharing the show with friends and family or or talking to people about it at work, but anything that you've been doing to increase the audience is is certainly working, and I'm very appreciative of that fact. So like I said, continue to tell your friends about the show if you like it, tell your family members, encourage them to give us a shot. Listenership has gone way, way up the last two weeks, and uh, I'm incredibly humbled and grateful that you guys are enjoying the product that I'm able to put out, and I'll continue to try to do the best job that I possibly can to keep things interesting every couple of weeks whenever I'm able to produce a show. Today's guest is Arkansas men's basketball coach Eric Musselman, who in his first season in Fayetteville led the Razorbacks to a 20-12 record and then put together the number five recruiting class in the country with four top 100 recruits in the ESPN rankings. Musselman's career in coaching began all the way back in 1989, when as a 23-year-old youngster, he earned his first head coaching position for the Rapid City Thrillers of the CBA, that's the Continental Basketball Association, sort of a precursor to the NBA D-League and now the G-League, if you will. Musselman is the son of a coach, and so his second job was in the NBA for the Minnesota Timberwolves, working under his father, who was the head coach, Bill Musselman. After one season there, he transitioned back to the CBA for a handful more seasons and set all kinds of records for NBA call-ups. His players were getting a chance to go from this feeder league to the big show on a regular basis, which of course is a feather in the cap of the coach and also the primary function of those feeder type leagues. He moved back to the NBA in 1998, accepting an assistant coaching position with the Orlando Magic under the legendary Chuck Daly and then stayed on when Doc Rivers took over the job a year later in 1999. From 2000 to 2002, he was an assistant coach for the Atlanta Hawks under Lon Kruger, and then he got his first chance to run an NBA franchise. In 2002, he was named head coach of the Golden State Warriors, spent two seasons there, and in his first season, finished as runner-up for NBA Coach of the Year behind some guy named Greg Popovich. From 2004 to 2006, Eric Musselman was an assistant coach for the Memphis Grizzlies, and from 2006 to 2007, he had a second chance to be an NBA head coach, this time with the Sacramento Kings. After that, he went back to the D-League, sort of the minor league route for a few more years, again pumping players up to the NBA level on a regular basis, and then he dove into the college ranks for the first time, beginning in 2012. He took a job as an assistant coach under Herb Sendak at Arizona State, stayed there for a couple years, and then took an assistant coaching job at LSU. And after that, this is where most people know him from, he took over at Nevada, where from 2015 to 2019, he compiled an impressive record of 110 victories against only 34 defeats. He reached the NCAA tournament three times and took the Wolfpack to the Sweet 16 once. That, of course, launched him into the stratosphere of upper echelon coaching searches around the country, and Arkansas decided that he would be the right fit, and Musselman agreed, so he moved his family to Arkansas and began rebuilding a very storied program that, over the last decade or so, has has gone a little bit wayward, but certainly has tremendous basketball tradition there in Arkansas, and in his first season, as I mentioned, a 20-12 and record, putting together the number five recruiting class in the country. His team led the country in three-point field goal percentage defense, and they led the SEC in free throws made, turnover margin, turnovers forced, 
total steals, and fewest turnovers per game. So obviously everyone is hoping that we have another successful basketball season later this year. Of course, if COVID-19 and the pandemic allow us to do so and keep the athletes and coaches safe and healthy. And if they do, it's going to be a lot of fun to see what Musselman can do in year two down there in Fayetteville because he certainly is putting together a terrific little squad and his coaching pedigree suggests that he rebuilds situations and teams very, very quickly. So without further ado, and now that you've heard my dog jump off the bed in the background with that twinkling of her collar, let's get into an interview with Arkansas men's basketball coach Eric Musselman. Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I know that you and your staff are busy getting ready for the season. I know you've been spending time with family as well and doing some clinics over the summer, so I do appreciate you carving out a little bit of time. And, you know, I know that you have been watching the NBA playoffs, and as a guy who spent so much time in that league, i got to ask you, what has caught your eye in terms of things that you found interesting or just, you know, fascinating to watch in this unique bubble environment we've had? Well, Michael, thanks so much for having me on. I think, uh, you know, as you look at that bubble, it's really interesting. Uh, Todd DeMoss, who actually works with the WNBA uh, and is, is one of their uh, guys that helps organize everything, I've really tried to pick his brain about what they've done in the sarasota Bradenton area in the, in the WNBA bubble. Um, and then as far as the NBA, uh, I think there's so many unique factors when you really, really think about what's going on, the commitment uh, for coaches and players um, to go into a bubble without their families until the playoffs started. And then as teams uh, started getting eliminated, small number of family members were able to come in um, and join them. But when you think about the commitment of, of basically your life being put on hold with the exception of just your craft, that commitment's incredible. And then to have an entire league, it shows the leadership of Adam Silver um, and the commitment of the players. I think that it's, it's easy uh, for fans to often criticize professional athletes because of the money that they make. Uh, but unless you're inside that world, you have no idea of the commitment, uh, even during a normal regular season with guys having to travel 82, you know, you play 82 games and, you're on the road 40 plus nights. That commitment is, is, is incredible as well. So, uh, but there's always storylines. I mean, to think that Miami um, is still alive, you, you got to go to the culture of what Pat Riley and Coach Spo have done um, and how they have a blueprint for how they practice and their conditioning. And you see that their conditioning, even in a unique situation, uh, they are in better condition than most teams that they play. And, and Michael Malone's done an incredible job of having fun. His, his uh, blueprint or style of play inside the bubble has been completely different than, you know, Miami's. Miami's strict discipline, toughness, intimidation, Denver's freestyle, um, you know, having fun. Guys are smiling. Um, and then you got – you know, a team like the Clippers who were just eliminated and, and the Lakers from L.A., and, and you could kind of sense pressure uh, with both those teams. You could, you, you, there's a heavy weight, obviously, on the Lakers and LeBron, um, and, then, and then the Clippers, the same thing, and you kind of saw a team that was a little bit discombobulated. And, 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 you know, it's interesting. People don't like to talk about it, Michael, but there's always a will to win once you get into playoff situations and you get down, right. will teams fight through it or not? And it's not just this year. That happens every year. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you was something you mentioned toward the start of your answer there about, you know, in a normal season, there would be 82 games and there'd be travel and there'd be back to backs. And I know we started to see some fatigue toward the end of the second round because playing every other day, I think, finally started to catch up with the guys. But, you know, without the travel, without the cross country travel that you sometimes have in playoff series and things, depending on, you know, who you're matched up with. How much differently would you be able to coach or maybe allot your minutes or, you know, differentiate some of the things that you're doing when you don't have to worry about guys only getting maybe two to five hours of sleep because you got into, you know, Salt Lake City at four in the morning after a game the night before? How much different would that be without the travel, do you think? Well, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And, and so you don't have uh, the travel um, you don't have the opposing crowd when you're a road team. However, you do have the, you know, quick turnaround time. 
um, almost as an AAU type setting or in college, a conference tournament setting uh, where you got to go back to back. And, and I, so I do think you've got to manage minutes when you play large number of games in a short amount of time, whether it's four games in a week or whatever. Um, but the travel can become mentally exhausting as well as physically exhausting. It, it's so interesting because, you know, we're in a time of, of the phrase time management right? Um, and people resting players over an 82 game season. And I actually think that the teams that are, as I've mentioned, that are the more mentally tough uh, and the teams that are in better condition are going to be able to thrive in this environment even more. You know, when when you think about, you know, the teams that have, have done well, you mentioned Miami and their, their conditioning routines, and you mentioned, you know, Michael Malone having sort of that free-flowing, fun style of basketball. Um, I know you're, you're coaching at the college level now, and it's not the NBA, but do you still find yourself looking at things on TV and saying, man, you know, I, I should try that with my guys, or, you know, hey, I remember when we did this back when I was with, you know, the Kings, or when I was with Golden State. Do you still, you know, find things and adapt things to, to your college guys that you watch on TV every Every night with these guys that are you know now into the conference finals <laughs> i'll tell you what michael if we are not creating something new on a daily basis um i can't function right every single day i want something new you know it's it's interesting i'm not a hockey fan um but because there was no sports on the other night i watched a hockey game i watched the face-off to start the game i immediately thought I want to take that face-off. I want to show our team a bunch of face-offs. And that's what we're going to do in our preparation for jump balls. Oh, wow. Um, because it's, it's unique. Um, and so I think that you're constantly learning. I loved your podcast with Coach Phillips the other day talking about tennis and lateral quickness. Uh, so what we did is we took some tennis clips of players going from baseline to baseline and showed our team, and then we showed – our guys on defense and talked about getting a little bit lower and having our antennas up. And then I threw in some short stops in baseball, um, how they are able to move laterally um, off how the, the ball comes off the bat. And so we t- I took that tennis thing that I learned on your podcast, and then I threw in a short stop. We also threw in some clips of defensive backs and football and their reaction um, and then we parlayed that into just lateral foot speed, quickness, and staying low and staying alert. Uh, but the jump ball and the, and the face-off, I've never even thought of it. It's never crossed my mind until I would literally turn on a game and watch that face-off. And I don't even know why it clicked because uh, I spent some time growing up in Minnesota where obviously hockey sure. is, is the premier you know sport in the state. So I've been around it before at a very young age, but, but that just kind of clicked. And so, um, yeah, I think we've always got to be creative as, as leaders or coaches. I think you've always like the, the worst thing in the world as a player or, or as an assistant coach is when you come to work, uh, or you come to practice and it's the same thing every single day. Uh, I think that's the poorest form of leadership. Like I hope that if you come and watched our practice two years ago when you watch it today, I hope there's a bunch of new drills. Um, you know, I, and, and it's interesting because I have two sons that are five years apart. They both played high school basketball. Their practices were the exact same. Um, and so I just kind of made a note mentally, like, I can't do that. Like, both of my son's teams were completely different. One team could have played faster. One team was bigger uh, and longer, but they played the same way. And I just feel like, You've got to constantly adjust. Your roster's constantly moving. Um, I've spent so much time, Michael, learning from other sports. I mean, um, when I got let go uh, from the Golden State Warriors, I got a phone call from Michael Lombardi, who was with the Oakland Raiders at the time. I had never talked to Michael in my life. Um, And he said, hey, um, Coach Musselman, I've been fired before. I know you don't want to work in your house. You'll drive your family crazy watching tape. We'll, we'll give you an office uh, here at the Raiders. We'll give you a desk. You can bring your computer in. You can watch games. Our owner, Al Davis, loves the NBA. Uh, he would love to have you hang around. And I actually did that. <laughs> wow. And it was probably, it's probably the most, uh, it's, it's, I've changed and altered more 
off of my time around the Raiders. And then I also spent time uh, in Tampa watching John Gruden uh, when he was coaching the Buccaneers. And we've completely changed uh, our shoot-arounds on game day. And it's all formatted off football. And when TV crews come in and watch us, um, our whole structure to a shoot-around is unlike uh, probably anybody in basketball. And, and all those ideas were stolen um, and they were stolen through football. So we, I've learned a ton from other sports. You know, I've used this example on the podcast before, and it might have actually been in the Wade Phillips episode that, that you mentioned and listened to. But when I was coming through college and then right after college, I had a few years in a row where I was covering Jim Beheim at Syracuse University. And obviously, Jim is famous for the 2-3 zone, the defense that he's employed for his entire you know four decades uh, up there in central New York. And, and Jim used to come to the Syracuse lacrosse games and he would watch the way that the lacrosse team played some of its zone defense around their, you know, hockey style and hockey sized net and how their players were, you know, spacing and moving. And then he would try and apply that some of those principles to his two, three zone. And so I, I really like the idea of, of crossing things over. And I think a lot of it, you know, when I was covering the Packers in the NFL, what I always heard from from GMs and scouts was a lot of times they liked guys who played a number of different sports growing up and they thought that it advanced their overall athleticism or their instincts and things in ways that you don't necessarily get if you just played football your entire life and no other sports and I think that that type of analogy then relates to what you and I were just discussing which is when you as a coach employ drills from other sports and things if a guy has you know even just a little bit of background when they were in middle school or high school with a particular particular movement, it comes to them a little easier and challenges their brain in a different way and just gets them sharper in a manner that they wouldn't if they were doing the same drills over and over. Does that make sense? There's no question. I mean, I, this is the wildest thing maybe that I've ever done is uh, when I was coaching in Reno uh, for, the, for their NBA development team, the Reno Bighorns, um, before our very first practice, um, I decided, because uh, our team was also owned by the people that own the Reno Aces, okay. uh, the minor league baseball team, and, 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 and my office actually was above, it was in a suite um, above home plate, and I was sitting there as we were getting, doing our practice plan preparation, I said, you know what, let's have the guys come and do batting practice the night before camp. And a couple of the coaches said, you know, why would we do that? And I said, well, one, I want to see who, who has, who's willing to have fun um, and kind of let their guard down. But I said, I want to see who's willing to stand in the batter's box. Um, you know, and, and we can, you know, we can change pitchers. And, and some guy, I knew that Mo Charlo could throw heat because um, he had played baseball um, at a high level in high school. And, and so we did that. And basically my mind was made up. I think we had 18 guys in training camp that year. Ten would make the ultimate roster. When we finished batting practice for a minor league NBA team, I had basically eliminated two guys because they couldn't stand in the batter's box and they were scared of a, of a pitch. And I thought, you know what, I'm not willing to put the ball in this dude's hands with the game <laughs> on the line if he can't stand in the batter's box. And, uh, you know, I think maybe that's a, a little bit of that mentality, too, is my dad played three sports in college, which a long time ago that was you know, a little bit unheard of, but, sure. but, you know, not like it would be today. And uh, But I do think that your analogy of different sports and learning from different sports and, and your body movement, the more sports that you do, the more it can help you. And I also think that you know, in today's society, so many guys play, some of these kids play 100 games in the summer AAU basketball, and if they were out playing baseball or flag football, it would also save their joints from yeah. doing the same movements over and over. That's a really good point. You know, I, I was I was one of those people that focused almost entirely on soccer, and, and by no means was I a college player or a pro or anything, but, you know, my knees gave out over time from doing the same cuts over and over and over again. Now there's some other factors involved too, but, you know, I know exactly what you mean. If you're, if you're uh, you know, that's why little league pitchers, they don't want them throwing curveballs over and over again until they get to a certain age because the joints just aren't made to last that way. Um, you know, you mentioned your dad playing a number of different sports and 
you know, while I was, you know, getting ready for this podcast, I, I found this great quote from, you know, one of your old colleagues, uh, Scott Brooks, now in the NBA, obviously, um, you know, coached at the Oklahoma City Thunder, the Washington Wizards. And Scott said, the only difference between you and your dad is your first name. And so I'm wondering if the obsession with studying other coaches, studying other sports, constantly learning, was that something that was instilled in you by your dad? <laughs> yes, for sure, Michael. So, uh, you know, when most kids were playing in sandboxes or watching cartoons when they woke up, I, I had game film or my dad would stick the local newspaper in front of me and we would highlight box scores, either Major League Baseball uh, box scores or NBA box scores, depending on the year. Um, but but I'll give you a little insight into, I think I was in sixth grade in San Diego, California, and my dad uh, was getting ready to have his first training camp as a professional coach at that time, it was the San Diego sales of the ABA, um, which at that time was, was, you know, no different really than the NBA, um, as far as talent, but he had come from the university of Minnesota. So it was the first time a college coach was getting ready to, uh, have a team meeting and have a training camp with a group of professionals. And Paul Brown, um, who was the former Cleveland Brown and Cincinnati Bengals coach and, general manager and then later owner, um, lived in La Jolla, California, which is where we had moved to. And Paul Brown sat at our dinner table and must have been there three or four hours. And the entire conversation revolved around the very first team meeting that my dad was going to have with his team. Um, and, I, and, and that lesson, my dad often talked about it at clinics when I got older and I would hear it over and over and over. Um, how when you go before a professional team, their antennas are up and you can really get buy-in or you can really lose buy-in from the opening team meeting. And so as a 55-year-old coach, uh, when I'm getting ready to go meet the very first time with my new roster, new team, I spend an enormous amount of time on what's going to be said. Um, and so for sure, hanging out with my dad, I mean, there's just so many stories. Uh, one of my dad's best friends uh, was Billy Martin, the former uh, New York Yankee, Oakland A's, Minnesota sure. Twins manager. Um, and so, you know, growing up, because Dave Winfield had played for my father at the University of Minnesota in basketball as well as baseball, and and Dave played for the Yankees. I mean, I, I've been in so many professional locker rooms um, outside of, of, of the sport that my dad coached. And, you know, to be able to uh, go to a Yankee game and then after a game um, go and, and, and have dinner um, with a Billy Martin and to hear my dad and, and, and a guy like that talk, two great competitors. And, um, you know, growing up in San Diego – my father was one of his best friends was Ballard Smith, who was the president of the San Diego Padres and was the son-in-law of, of, of Ray Kroc. Um, and so that's where I watched baseball games as a, as a sixth, seventh uh, and eighth grader was in Ray Kroc's suite um, because my dad was so close with Ballard. So uh, just been really, really fortunate. And then I always was a ball boy. Uh, you know, when my dad was coaching the, the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, you know, I think he wanted me to be the ball boy in the home locker room. And I didn't want, I wanted to be the ball boy in the road locker room because I wanted to experience all the teams that came in. Um, and I, again, I think my dad wanted me to kind of hang out with him, but I wanted to know what, I got to hear a, a pregame speech um, of, of all NBA teams that came in and played the Cavs. Right. And I got to see, I got to rebound um, at a, as a high school guy. I was in ninth, tenth grade. I got to rebound for Larry Bird and watch his routine. Wow! Um, in, in, incredible, Michael, to have your mom drop you off at the Cleveland Coliseum, go in there at three o'clock, and think that I'm going to get shots up myself, and to see Larry Bird running the state the steps in the arena way before the first bus even got there. You know, just incredible lessons that I got to see at such a young age. 
Well, what's remarkable to me about that story is, you know, if you were in ninth or 10th grade, maybe even 11th grade at the time, you're probably, you know, maybe 15, 16 years old, you know, perhaps 17. And, you know, within seven or eight years of that, maybe even six years, if my my math is right, you're a head coach for the first time, you know, in that CBA, Continental Basketball Association at 23 years old. So you talked about, you know, what it's like to prepare being in your 50s going in and talking to a new Arkansas or a new Nevada team for the first time. But what about when you're 23 years old talking to professionals in the CBA it's not the NBA but it's still a pro league I mean what was going through your mind at at that point and how did you get the buy-in despite the fact that I'm assuming the majority of your players were older than you I was petrified Um, and then and then the a speech that I got from my father uh, was a pretty rough one he said hey you don't know Jack you're (laughs) 23 years old he said, let me give you one piece of advice. When you put your roster together, you better go get players that have played for great coaches. Uh, and, and he was friends with Bobby Knight. They grew up together. Bobby Knight's from Oroville, Ohio. My dad's from Worcester. They were neighboring uh, rivals all through high school. And then they both, my dad's first game in the Big Ten at Minnesota was against Bobby Knight. That was Bobby Knight's first game at Indiana. The score was 52-51. Uh, Minnesota, but uh, my dad said, hey, go get those Arcanian players, go get Bobby Knight players because they can self-coach. And you're too young, you're too inexperienced. you got to get guys that know how to play the game and have been well-coached. And that's what I did. I went out, we had guys like Jarvis Bass Knight, we had guys like Sutton Sam Smith um, from UNLV. Um, and the guy that helped me coach my first few years, more than anybody, was Keith Smart. Um, and Keith played for me parts of six seasons with that Rapid City Thriller team. Uh, and then Jimmy Thomas. Jimmy was another player uh, from Indiana. And obviously Keith Smart went on and, and, and became an NBA head coach. Uh, but those guys from Indiana and UNLV, my first few years, they got me through uh, a, a learning curve uh, but the one thing that the players did know uh, was that I had their back and I was going to be really, really competitive. Um, and and we, we had great teams. We broke minor league records. We broke, most importantly, minor league call-up records. Uh, but really, it was, it, was, it was all done because we had players of high character that came from great programs. You know, I remember going to CBA games when I was a little kid. I remember my mom taking me, and, you know, at the time I must have been five, six years old. But with the proliferation of the D League and now the evolution into the G League, I think a lot of times it's it's easy to forget, you know, how influential the CBA was in its heyday. And so, you know, for listeners who might not be familiar, can you kind of paint a picture of what the league was like, everything from the types of arenas you were playing in to the types of players you would get and sort of what life was like in, in sort of that you know quasi feeder league that the NBA had at the time. Uh, it was so I, you know I'm one of the few guys I probably actually I'm probably the only guy that coached in the CBA, the NBA D League, the NBA college, and the USBL. Um, and the USBL was a summer league, but it was a pro league. A lot of the CBA players would go from the CBA to the USBL. Um, it was so competitive, so much more competitive uh, than the current G League. The G League is so watered down because you have to think almost every NBA team uh, has a minor league team. So, right. you're, you know, you're 20-plus minor league. NBA rosters now are 15 with, with two-way players, with Exhibit 10 contract players, and – when I was coaching in the old CBA, some years there was only eight feeder teams. Some years there was 12. One year, the most that I ever had in the old CBA, there were 16. But think about the coaches. Uh, Bill Musselman, Phil Jackson, George Carl, Phil Flip Saunders, um, and, 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 the, and the number of, of great players I had a guy named Michael Williams play for us, and he broke the all-time NBA free throw record. I think he made, I don't know, 90-some in a row, and that was a record at one point. Um, So just incredible talent. Um, You know, and and at that point, you were really competing with overseas markets as well. You know, places like 
Greece, um, Italy, Spain, uh, guys were really, really making a ton of money. Um, and so it was, a, it was a very, very competitive, um, market, uh, but, but the best training ground ever. And then you talk about arenas, um, the old, uh, Albany, uh, armory, um, you know, <laughs> when you would, when you would play at the armory at halftime, if you had to use the bathroom, you used a public bathroom. Come on. Um, so you would you would be going to the bathroom, um, and there would be fans next to you, and oh you're an opposing gosh. team. So when my father was coaching the Tampa Bay Thrillers, um, and they played Phil Jackson's Albany Patroons, uh, my dad actually had to bring police officers with him. They flew him up from Tampa. Um, to go to the restroom and to sit by his bench when they played because it was a fierce rivalry. And then a few years later, my dad went on to coach the Patroons. Um, but that just kind of gives you a, a little bit of a picture, Michael, of what uh, it was truly like. But, but you could, you, you know, there was a team in Mexico City. Um, and I remember I had heard that they weren't drawing very well. And so our Rapid City team went down for a two-game series against the Mexico City CBA team. And they were only there one year. Well, I walked in the building, there were 16,000 people, and I had heard that they couldn't get anybody in the building. And I went and asked one of the guys that worked there, why, why is there so many people here? And if you brought the top to a 7-Up bottle, you got in free. Oh, and man. so that was a promotion that they had used for an entire month. Um, so just wacky, wacky stories. But the funny thing is, when I turn on an NBA game, uh, I'll turn on an NBA playoff game tonight, and two of those three referees repped in the old CBA. Wow. Um, so just an incredible training ground. And, you know, you look at coaches um, that are current NBA coaches. Scotty Brooks played for my dad uh, in Albany, the Patroons. Um, Rick Carlisle played for my dad. Uh, the current coach of the Dallas Mavericks played for the Albany Patroons. So just a lot of guys that had a, that, that had great careers post playing, um, but really, really, really competitive. I know you had an opportunity to, to coach with your dad in 1991 in Minnesota. And, you know, I think it's a pretty incredible feat that you guys became the first father son duo eventually to both be head coaches of an NBA franchise at some point in your respective careers. I'm wondering what that experience of, of seeing the NBA at such a young age, also working alongside another assistant in Tom Thibodeau, who would go on to have a tremendous career and is still coaching in the league. What did you learn from that brief experience in 1991 that you could translate toward the end of the 90s when you caught on in the NBA again with the Orlando Magic and then stayed in the league for you know well over a decade? Well, Michael, it was it was uh, so the my dad was hired by the Timberwolves obviously their inaugural season and they actually hired him the year before so that he could scout. So he had a full 12 months on the job to scout. And when he got the job, you know, I kept telling my sister, I can't wait to join dad. You know, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be the NBA. I'm going to be out of Rapid City, South Dakota and coaching. Uh, you know, so I kept thinking. And ac actually, at that time, I was the general manager of Rapid City. It was Bill Flip Saunders, who had played for my dad at the University of Minnesota and would later go on to coach the Pistons, Wizards, and Minnesota Timberwolves. Flip was our coach, and I was the GM right. uh, when my dad got that Timberwolves job. And so uh, then, then year one's about to start, and my dad still has not offered me an assistant coaching spot. So <laughs> I call my dad, and I say, hey, Dad, like, it's getting close to training camp, man. Are you going to hire me? He goes, no. And the dead silence. Like, I did not know what to say. I was crushed. My dad was my idol. He was my best friend, um, and I was absolutely floored. And he very, you know, business-like said, you've got to become a head coach or an assistant coach at the pro level before I'm going to hire you. And Flip Saunders then went on to coach lacrosse, uh, Catbirds in the CBA, so it opened up our job in Rapid City. So I became the head coach and GM, and then the following year, in year two with the Timberwolves, my dad did hire me, um, and I actually moved in with him um, and lived in his house, and that lasted about maybe two weeks. He was a <laughs> night owl. 
um, I, the, the third night with my dad, I got woken up um, at about three in the morning and he wanted me to watch Utah's pick and roll on film. Oh, and gosh. this was like the middle of the summer. He wanted, let's dissect Carl Malone, John Stockton pick and roll. And the next morning when I went into work, I said to Coach Thibodeau, hey, Tom, where are you living? And he, I'll never forget it. He said, Hennepin Crossings. I can walk to the, to the arena. And I said, G- give me the phone number. I called, got a place that day, moved my stuff out of my dad's house. And that, that was the end of my dad and I living together. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But clearly it didn't sour the relationship because I remember reading that, you know, you and your dad spoke on the phone 365 days a year, you know, for, you know, the remainder of, of your guys' time together. And that's, I mean, that, that type of relationship and that type of resource, you know, has to be just, just tremendous. And so I, while the living situation might not have worked out, I'm guessing the season overall uh, was probably still one of the fondest memories you had in coaching. There's no doubt. It's actually, you know, especially uh, now that my dad's not living, it's, it's probably, um, you know, from a career standpoint, you know, the best, uh, you know, the best year that I've ever had. I mean, to be able to work with your dad, to be able to sit next to him on a bench, uh, to be able to hear his command in a huddle, um, his creativity um, in game planning, uh, in my opinion, is unlike anyone that I've ever been around. He, you know, there was one night where we had a seven-foot three-center Randy Brewer, and he was not very mobile at all. Um, and we were getting ready to play the Lakers, um, and my dad said, "Hey, I'm going to have Randy guard Magic Johnson." And Magic was the point guard for the LA Lakers, so we had our seven foot three center back off of Magic about seven to eight feet, um, and and try to force Magic to take perimeter shots rather than allow him to post up our point guards. And put his post up game was his strength, and his perimeter shooting was his weakness. So um, I learned really early on. Um, that my dad was willing to take media criticism on matchups and style of play in order to put the team in the best position possible to win a game. You know, you talked about media criticism there, and and I wanted to bring that up as it relates to your two years uh, with the Magic in the late 90s, the first time you're in the NBA, and it's not on your father's staff. And so, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of the Brooklyn Nets for hiring Steve Nash, somebody who has no coaching experience at all, and all of a sudden he's an NBA head coach. Well, you kind of had almost polar opposite resumes for the two head coaches that you worked with in Orlando, the first being Chuck Daly, who by that point has a gold medal with the Dream Team, as probably everybody knows, as well as two NBA rings uh, from the early 90s. And so then all of a sudden, after that season, Doc Rivers comes in, and he's never coached at any level. So can you kind of compare and contrast what it was like to be in the room and be on a staff with a guy who was well-respected and had won just about everything you can, and then the next year, a guy who's three years removed from the end of his playing career and has to get that buy-in as somebody who's never coached at any level? Well, it was it was, it was it, both uh, Doc Rivers and Chuck Daly incredible experiences for me because uh, first of all, the interview with coach Daly, I was coaching the Florida beach dogs, which was a CBA team uh, in West Palm beach. Coach Daly was living in Jupiter, Florida. It was about a 25 minute drive. Coach Daly called me out of the blue. um, And and he, and, and Chuck had actually worked for my dad. My dad was uh, in management with the Cleveland Cavaliers and hired coach Daly that his Coach Daly's first job as a head coach was actually for my dad with the Cavaliers. Um, But I had no relationship with Coach Daly, and he called me and he said, "Uh, meet me at this breakfast place. I drove there. He he pulled five salt and pepper shakers, five each, put them (laughs) on the table, and he said, all right, there's a wing pick and roll. We're going to trap. Show me the rotation." So I took the salt and sh- sh- uh, pepper shakers. I showed the rotation. He said, all right, great. Side out of bounds, 4.2 seconds. We're down three points. Show me your side out of bounds. And I mean, I am sweating. Like, of course. I'm, I'm sweating. Uh, and then he, he got me on one more. He got me on post-defense. We're going to trap from the X spot. 
which was basically the nail or opposite elbow, show me the rotations. Um, we hadn't even ordered. And after those three questions, he said, you're hired. You can stay and eat with me or you can leave. I want you back there tomorrow at noon. So I said, all right, coach. I was so nervous. I was so happy. I took off. I didn't even eat with him. Uh, I went back to my house. I met him at noon. I thought we were just going to talk. And he said, start loading boxes up. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, we're moving to Orlando right now. <laughs> so I actually loaded, and it was mainly his suit boxes, because um, he had so many suits. Um, he had close to 80 suits, almost one for every game. We loaded those boxes up. His brother had the moving truck. We got to Orlando. We unboxed his stuff. And he said, all right, Eric, thanks. So I walked outside his house. I had no car because I had driven with his brother. Right. Uh, left Palm from Orlando's three hours or whatever. I um, mean, I called Brendan, showed the assistant coach, and I said, Brendan, I'm outside Chuck's house, and I have no car or anything. He just told me, thanks for moving in. What do I do? And Brendan just started laughing. He said, that's Coach Daly. <laughs> that's amazing. That's one of the best interview yeah. stories I've heard. But he was, he was a master. I mean, I'm talking maybe the greatest coach of all time of any sport because he was such a player's coach. Um, like Horace Grant did not like to practice. So Coach Daly just had a meeting with him, and he said, hey, look, Horace, I need you to suit up. I heard you didn't suit up for practice the year before much. Just suit up and kind of stand next to me, and we'll get you stretching, shooting, and then we, when, we, when we do taxing stuff on the body, I'll kind of get you out of there. Um, and he did so many things like that. Uh, that it was just incredible. And, and uh, I think that year we were tied with two other teams for the best record um, in the Eastern Conference. Um, unfortunately, we ran up against uh, Allen Iverson, and we were watching film until about 5, 6 in the morning after game one, and Coach Daly turned the, the, the video off on the Sixers and said, Allen Iverson is a genius. And we have no answers. Good night, guys. Go get some rest. And that's how we <laughs> ended the meeting. Um, but and then, and then you you know you kind of you kind of transition to Coach Rivers. Uh, and at that time, there wasn't many coaches that didn't have prior coaching experience. You know, right. obviously with Steve Kerr and now Steve Nash, that's a little bit more of the norm. But Doc was way ahead of a lot of people in that. Uh, but I will say this. Uh, he had all of his playbooks from when he played, um, and he would study those things, and his meetings were extremely organized. But Doc was an incredible people person. He really, really does a great job of connecting with the players and getting maximum effort out of them, although I know that, you know, that, that didn't seem like the case again or with the Clippers this year, but I'm telling you, he's a master at getting guys to play hard, and I've never, ever been around a coach that gives better pregame speeches. Um, he loves boxing, and so he really loved to pull out, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali boxing video or uh, stories about boxers. Um, and I thought he did a great job of getting guys ready to play night after night after night of an 82-game grind. Um, and then the other thing, that the cool thing is to sit back and see how much he's developed. I think he's one of the best, if not the best, after-time out coaches, uh, and, and that's been really cool to see as well. You know, one of the things I enjoyed talking to either head coaches or assistant coaches about when I was covering the NFL was how they sort of accumulated material or gathered ideas for what they would hope would be an interview for a coordinator position on either side of the ball or maybe a head coaching position if they were at that level. And so, you know, I heard stories about guys who would, you know, keep like a, a notepad in their glove compartment because they might be driving on the highway and get an idea about a, a formation or a concept and they wanted to pull over and scribble it down and then they'd get home and they'd add it to a binder. I remember when Doug Marone, uh, who's now the coach of the Jaguars, when he interviewed for a job at my alma mater, Syracuse, as the head coach, he had a binder 
binder that was called The Plan, and it had like every step of how he would rebuild a program that had a lot of tradition and history, but had recently struggled. And, you know, all kinds of stories about the way guys prepare a pamphlet or some kind of literature for whoever's interviewing them. And so I'm wondering at what point you started to either recognize yourself or maybe catch wind of the fact that you were a potential head coaching candidate and did you start to do anything differently to prepare for what ended up being you know numerous interviews over the course of your career yeah for sure i mean my dad was really secretive of of a lot of stuff and he and he always would tell me uh to 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 keep notes to have my own binders um, he was just meticulous. He just never, he just never really shared it unless he went to a clinic, um, or a coach reached out to him. Um, and so you, there's no doubt, um, you know, the interview preparation, um, was something I always loved to take notes. I worked one summer for, for Hubie Brown. We took a team to Limoges, France, an all-star team for Nike. Um, and, and literally the entire practice, um, I would get on my hands and knees and write on these little t- cards everything that he basically said. And he, he he grabbed me one day after about the fourth practice and he said, "Bus, what are you what are you writing down?" And I said, "I'm writing down everything you say. I've never heard a coach so detailed." And he just kind of chuckled and he said, "Hey, I actually need you to coach. Like, would you pass the ball to somebody instead of writing notes down?" Um, and and so I knew the preparation. Um, and then I love to pick people's brains. Uh, like when I was going to the Raiders office in Oakland, I, I, I kept asking Michael Lombardi, like, tell me about Al Davis and, you know, like the lessons of the aggressive passing game and his drafting methods of, hey, we're going to draft for speed. Whether you agreed or disagreed, there was a plan. Um, and so, um, you know, to me, that stuff is, is a necessity um, Kevin Towers, who was the GM of the San Diego Padres, I begged Kevin for, to allow me to come into their draft room the year that they had the number one pick in the MLB draft. And they took a, they actually took a player from San Diego, from Mission Bay High, uh, with the last name Bush, who, who really didn't turn out, but he was the number one pick in the draft. But I wanted to see how an MLB draft war room, so to speak, how that functioned and so um you know for sure with the interview process it is about preparation and it's about it's about you got to do it over a course of time you can't get an interview for a job and then all of a sudden try to put this stuff together what i've always tried to do is have an interview book ready and then when you get a call about a particular job then it's your job to study the roster uh to study the organization or the program um, and try to figure out how you fit. Um, but, but some of the interviews have just been incredible. I kind of mentioned, you know, coach Daly's, but when I interviewed with the Kings, um, unfortunately, because I was only coaching the Kings for one year, my interview with the Malou family was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Um, you know, because it was Gavin and Joe Maloof. Um, one of them was really fun loving and really, really easy to talk to. The other one was a little bit more businesslike. Uh, we interviewed at the Paul's hotel in Vegas. Um, and then one of the other brothers, George, uh, he, he ran the Paul's at the time. So he was p- kind of going in and out of, uh, of the meeting because he had hotel stuff going on. And then we had Mrs. Maloof, the mother. Um, on a conference call, uh, and then we also plugged in uh, one of the Maloof sisters. Um, wow. So, and then Jeff Petrie was the GM, but that was unlike any interview that I ever had. Um, and that's probably the one job that I look back, Michael, and say, "Hey, I wish I would have had more time, or I wish I would have done things different." That's the one time that you know that I look at my career like I failed at that job. Um, but the interview was really unique. Um, and then, unfortunately, I did such a good job on the interview that one leaked that, that I brought a 200-page notebook in there, and I had <laughs> notebooks for every situation that I think the Kings fans, you know, they basically said, hey, this guy, because of his interview books, he won. It wasn't because he deserved the job. So, um, 
really, really fun stories, though. And, and I look back, and, and, you know, Chuck Daly's interview was so simple, but it was the best interview. Uh, he got right to the point, wanted to know one or two things that I could possibly contribute. Um, and so it's, it's interesting as you look back when you've had different interviews um, with different people. I interviewed with an AD before I had ever been a head coach at the collegiate level, and the guy fell asleep in the middle of the interview, and I actually oh, wow. got up and told the search firm guy, hey, this isn't going to work. Let's talk quietly so we don't wake the guy up. Um, so it's, I think every interview, you, you always learn something new. What about the inverse of that? You know, you've been part of a, a number of interviews yourself as a candidate, but given that you have had coaching experience at so many different levels and so many different places, you've also had numerous opportunities to fill out your own staffs, obviously, and, and you've got a terrific track record of identifying guys who would go on to have, you know, tremendous opportunities later in their careers, whether it's Jim Boylan, David Fisdale, Scott Brooks. You made that decision to hire Flip Saunders when you were the GM of, uh, of a CBA team. So, what is it that you look for when you're on the other side of the table and you have prospective coaches and prospective colleagues of yours sitting across from you uh, trying to present themselves in the best possible light? What do you look for there? Well, it's interesting, Michael, because I feel like almost everything uh, in my career, I've gotten better with age. The one thing that I would say that might not be the case is hiring staff. Um, and I had incredible assistant coaches in the NBA, and I think it's because really that's where I grew up. Um, so I, I knew, like Flip had played for my dad, um, and so that was an easy hire, although at the time Flip Saunders was the second assistant coach at Tulsa. So he was a college coach, had zero pro experience, was not a former pro player, um, but he was a great hire because he and I connected. We trusted each other. Um, and so, uh, and then Scotty Brooks had played for my dad uh, with that Albany team. So he was an easy hire. David Fisdale went to the University of San Diego, which is where I went. So we had a ton of connectivity between us. Um, and then I get, you know, a head job at the collegiate level, and I don't know any college assistant coaches because basically my whole life had been minor league basketball. Um, and, and so I think it's, it was important for me to hire not friends for me, not to hire, um, NBA people, uh, for me to try to get guys that knew the recruiting game. Cause I was still learning and continue to still learn. I'm way behind, um, almost every sec coach, from a recruiting standpoint, just because of lack of time. So it was much easier for me uh, to hire uh, in the NBA because I had known some of those people for so long um, and had way more connections like Jim Boylan. Uh, I had known from being around him at Chicago pre-draft and scouting, uh, you know, the Chicago pre-draft. So I knew those people. Um, but I do think, you know, the biggest thing is you have to be as thorough as possible and it's hard, just like with players, like you never know a player until you coach him. Um, but, but staff uh, alignment becomes really important. Like, what is your vision? Um, I, you know, the people that, that I really want to work with and coach with are people that want to be head coaches and people that are really interested in their craft and they're not just doing the job because it's a job and they want to get paid a salary but people that really, really want to strive uh, to try to become head coaches themselves. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think the way that you've you've started things at Arkansas has been has been really cool to watch. You know, and not just in terms of you know the way that you've um, protected the recruits within the state of Arkansas. You know, signing four kids that are top 100 recruits and that can stay home in state. You know, that's that's a strategy that is is extremely effective and and one that's employed you know, at, at a number of different universities, but I like some of the things that I've seen and, and learned about you through, um, through social media and articles I've read where you're doing virtual film breakdowns of your players against NBA teams using kind of like what looks like NBA 2K software or, you know, using, um, you know, your own personality to make gifts and memes and things to relate to the millennial and, and, you know, generation, generational culture of, of people that are much younger. The idea of, you know, using, 
using your Twitter feed in a way that can disseminate important coaching messages or points or, you know, draw on philosophies from other organizations. I mean, I saw you tweeting about everything from the Philadelphia Union in Major League Soccer to something you knew specific about Eric Spolstra's offseason workouts that we already touched upon. So how have you sort of evolved in that regard and, and tailored your approach to the college game? Because, you know, by all accounts, recruiting, win-loss, statistical, the start at Arkansas has been very impressive. Well, I think the biggest thing, it's, it's so interesting. You know, when I was in the NBA, I think that, that, that the perception was, um, up, you know, could be uptight, um, really competitive, um, too serious. Um, and that was when I was younger, even, um, because all people really see is like, you know, your personality during a game. Uh, with a lot of pro coaches, I feel like now, obviously over time, you know, that's changed where you have a little bit more media access, but, um, you know, I, when I got to college, I said, all right, look, I want to have fun above all else. Um, I knew that I could go back and be an NBA assistant coach. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to be a head coach and I knew after two cracks at the NBA, that that probably wasn't going to happen unless I was back at, you know, in the saddle as an assistant coach for probably three or four years. And I just didn't want to do that. Um, and so when I, when I decided to go the college route, I said, Hey, recruiting is the most important thing. It's always players, players, players. And how do I have as much fun? So I wrote down all the things that were different between the NBA and college coaching. And, some of the things that just kept coming back were besides the student athlete, some of the things were like, Hey, it's awesome. You're, you're in on a campus with other coaches from other sports. So uh, at Nevada, what I started to do is, you know, like do these fun videos. Uh, if the soccer team was getting ready to have their first game, you know, I would, I would go do some soccer skit. And then prior to our first football game at Nevada, I, I put a football uniform on, uh, acted like I had a hundred yard run. Uh, and I was just having fun and it kind of took on a life of its own. Um, but even this year, you know, at, at Arkansas, we, we made the decision, like, how can we be different when a kid's on a recruiting visit? Like, what can we do? Well, everybody takes pictures of the player in the uniform. Like they've been doing that for, you know, how many years? Yeah. So w what's different? So what we did is we, we, I had the player, when he was on campus, I asked him, what's his favorite NBA scene? And, you know, one guy would say, uh, Allen Iverson, after he hit the shot, and he walks over and stares at Tyrone Lou. So I said, all right, great. Here's the deal. You, got, you just did your team, you know, you did your picture in the Arkansas uniform. Let me go throw a uniform on. You're going to do Allen Iverson. You can step over me. I'll be Ty Lou. <laughs> and, and so we did that. Um, and then that, that just like with the recruits, I mean, that took off and, um, I would make an initial phone call to a player kind of introducing myself. And the kid would say, Hey coach, I want to do something. I got a scene. And I said, well, first we got to make sure you want to come on an official visit. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, even if I don't come on a visit, I can't commit to that, but I want to commit to this scene so that nobody else takes it. Um, so that's been really, really fun. And certainly, um, you know, with recruiting, uh, giving the fan, giving the boosters, giving the alumni, giving the recruit an inside look um, is really, really vital to, to college athletics right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's it's really fun. You know, if I was a, a kid and, and I saw those types of things, it would it would make me appreciate, you know, that there's something beyond just basketball, that there's gonna be some some friendship there, some give and go, some comedy, some some life skills. It's it's really interesting and and I appreciate that. Um, you know, as somebody now who watches kids go through the recruiting process on the journalism side of things. I know I've got about a couple minutes left before your your team meeting and I don't want you to be late, but one of the things I like to do at the end 
end of of shows, especially with guys whose careers have spanned you know so many different eras and so many different levels, is I like to ask them just quickly about you know some of the players that they coached. I pick out maybe two or three individuals that I think are really unique and just kind of give the fans a little bit of of an idea of what these unique personalities were like. And the first guy I want to ask you about, I know you had him at the very end of his career, but with everything that he stood for and everything that he meant on a, on a cultural level in addition to what he achieved basketball-wise, what do you remember about Manute Bowl? Oh, man. So I had Manute with the uh, Florida Beach Dogs. Uh, just uh, he – I'll tell you what he would do is he would take the entire team out to dinner. And I mean all 10 guys and the staff. Uh, he was a fierce competitor. Like, you know, people would see him launching threes when he played for Don Nelson, the Golden State Warriors. And he would launch threes for our team too. But I'll tell you what, he was an incredible, incredible competitor. But above all else, I've never been around a funnier guy on a team bus who could loosen up the chemistry better than the Newt Bowl. I believe it. I believe it. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And then how about uh, how about Ron Artest? You know, you had him there in, in Sacramento before the name changes and everything. But in terms of, you know, being a lockdown defender and a guy that, you know, sort of exemplifies the toughness that I think coaches like, I got to imagine that, you know, even though there's some baggage that comes with it at times, that, that there are some traits there that coaches love. I absolutely loved Ron Artest. He, he might be the most charismatic guy that I've ever been around. Like he could light up a room. Uh, but I have so many stories um, on Ron that they're incredible. I mean, um, at one time, uh, he, first of all, he was the greatest individual defender that I've ever coached. But he was also on the flip side, a guy from a team defensive standpoint, that became problematic at times because Ron was so focused on, all right, I got Kobe Bryant. I'm going to shut him down. Well, that's great. But if there's dribble penetration by Robert Ori, we might need some help. <laughs> and so, um, and Ron would literally, I mean, you'd be in a huddle and you would be playing somebody and he would be locking his guy up and somebody would score two baskets on Kevin Martin. And Ron would come to the huddle and say, I want him. <laughs> um, but but I'll, I'll, t- I'll leave it at this. You'll like this, Michael. So we're playing a game. I think it was Milwaukee, maybe the third game of the year. And it's a tight game. It was about 40 seconds left. I called a timeout. And Ron comes sprinting at me. It was a one-point game. And he goes, hey, what do the Sacramento Kings do when they need a basket? And there was dead silence. And he goes, they give the ball to Ron Artest. <laughs> so, so I said, all right. So I grabbed my, my clipboard. And I diagram a play for Ron. I put him in pick and roll as a ball handler. It didn't work out. <laughs> Two nights later, same thing happens. A little bit different time, maybe 18 seconds. What do we do when the Kings need a basket? We go to Ron Artest. So I said, all right, I'm going to put him in pick and roll and a pick and pop. It doesn't work out. It happened about four times. And finally, we're getting ready to play Ron's had, you know, a post up now. He's had a handle in the pick and roll. He's been a screen setter on the pick and roll. Hadn't really worked out. So I said, hey, here's what the Sacramento Kings are going to do when we need a basket. We're going to run pick and roll with Mike Bibby and Brad Miller. That's what we're going to do. But Ron was, he was a great competitor. And I'll tell you what, almost, well, not almost, to a fault, he was really tough to, 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 to have in practice because he never backed off. So like our practices, like he'd get mad and hard foul a guy um, just because of his competitive nature. But I'll tell you what, he coaching Ron when I had him made me a way better coach. Um, I'll tell you one more story because I tell it to our team. Uh, I subbed him out of a game. He went down to the end, grabbed a drink of Gatorade, and he came back came right back and he walked by me and went to the scores table. <laughs> and I said, Ron, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going back in the game. I'm ready to, I'm ready to, I, I, I got a drink. I said, can I at least tell you who to go in for? <laughs> so, so, so I tell our guys all the time, do not self sub yourself back in a game. And I tell them that, that quick story on Ron, Ron, our test. 
That's awesome. Well, we're not going to end on a better note than that. And Eric, again, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to share these stories. This was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Um, obviously, we're all hoping for a great college basketball season this year if everything can go according to plan health-wise. And it's going to be fun to watch the Razorbacks this year. And, and again, thank you so much for being generous with your time. No, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. So there you have it, a conversation with Arkansas basketball coach Eric Musselman. This might have been my favorite podcast thus far, and I know I've said that a lot on previous episodes, but I really mean that with this one and and for a number of different reasons. First and foremost, Eric and I had never met before. We had never spoken before, but obviously I was familiar with him, his personality, his career, the breadth of experience that he had at at multiple levels. And so I sent a, a cold call email, if you will, to the sports information director at the University of Arkansas and asked if Eric would be interested. And sure enough, he jumped at the opportunity and right away, you know, he understands what this kind of a show is about. You know, he took the time and, and, you know, this is an immense credit to him. He took the time to listen to about two episodes of the show prior to joining me so that he could get a feel for what I'm like and what I'm looking for and the types of uh, conversations I have. And, and he got it right away. I mean, you could tell the stories he was telling, the details, the funny anecdotes. He understood what this show was about. And so this was a, a lot of fun for me, you know, hearing these crazy stories about Chuck Daly and the salt shakers or, you know, Minute Bowl taking everybody out to dinner and, you know, Ron Artest demanding plays be called for him in a huddle to, you know, sharing bathrooms with the general public when, when the team was in the CBA. It's just, you know, these are fascinating types of stories. And that's the stuff I really like to bring you, sort of those behind the scenes moments that, that we fans don't really get to see very often. So, um, you know, hopefully I can continue to do that in future episodes. Extremely grateful to Eric for not only being willing to join the show, but then giving me a full hour of his time. I know that, you know, he's got a busy schedule just as all these coaches do right now. So it especially means a lot to me when somebody who I don't know is willing to carve out time in their day and trust me uh, that I'm not going to waste their time and, and make sure that the product I'm putting out is, is worth the subtraction from their daily schedule. So again, very thankful for Eric and very thankful for all of you guys listening. I encourage you to check out other episodes of this show available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Alexa, Amazon Echo, everywhere that you can think of, we're just about available for you. And so once again, thank you all so much for the big uptick in listenership. It's been awesome. It means a lot to me. It's very humbling. And until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm